0: Great, well, let's get going. For those of you who like plans, some people here will love plans, and other people will get very bored by plans. This is what we're going to try to talk about, okay? Health needs of the world. That will, that's very simple, that'll only take a couple of minutes. Um, Primary health care, what is it? Well, that'll take a couple of hours or so. And uh, faith-based organizations, stand up. This is a very, very exciting day for faith-based organizations. Um, as I hope you will agree at the end, opportunities. What are the opportunities out there? Well, there are so many and so many exciting ones. Um, some people worry a lot about. My goodness me, if I get too much involved in in healthcare, I won't be able to do my proclamation of the gospel. Rubbish. They go wonderfully together. <laughs> Great. So that's what we're going to do. Health needs of the world. For those who'd like to know just where they're at in the in the sort of Pew sheet or whatever you call it in the UK, where health needs of the world, and they are absolutely overwhelming. There are a whole lot more now than they were this time last year because of the global recession. So some of my statistics are over-optimistic, because I haven't changed all of them. What are these huge needs? Well, this rather scandalous need, actually, it's more than 1 billion. The current thought is probably 1.5 billion. It depends on how you define extreme poverty. Less than a dollar a day, less than two dollars a day. There are different definitions, nobody's agreed yet. All the kids in the world dying, not dying from ordinary diseases, but from simple preventable diseases. Fairly scandalous. It's not just in the developing countries. I think 58 million out of 136 million who give birth yearly without any medical assistance is great. Of course, a lot of women will be delighted not to have a doctor around when they're giving birth, but that's not the point of this slide. It's the fact they have not got access to it if they need a doctor. And, of course, this large and gradually growing number of people living with HIV AIDS. So just a few of these enormous needs... I know you know all this stuff, but it's just good to be reminded. Am I, am I audible? Yes. Good. Uh, the health needs. I mean, this is a cute little picture, isn't it? This was taken by a Save the Children Fund person, I think, in Niger. But, of course, he's drinking water held by his older, well, I think actually by his grandmother. Children, his parents have died, and the water's coming from this filthy place where all the cattle go. So the health needs are huge. Now the other worrying thing is that it's not just the health needs that are so so huge, but it's the access is so terrible. So 1.3 billion people lack access to basic health care. They're not rich enough, they're not brave enough, they're not near enough, they don't speak the right language, the health facility doesn't work down the road. Five miles is too far if you're with a very sick child or you are very sick yourself. So one-fifth of the world, that figure has also gone up since I did this, one-fifth of the world has got no access to affordable health care. That is pretty scandalous. They're not all in developing countries. Some are in your country and some are in ours. The country that has Liverpool and London in it. So guys, this is the message that healthcare is not working for the people who need it most. That is fairly scandalous, when we do all the clever things that we do in the world. healthcare is not working for those who need it most. Uh, Including this girl who is looking bewildered because she's carrying a little baby brother who is seriously ill, and the health center is five kilometers away. Will she get there? It's very hot and she doesn't know if it'll be open. Also, will they be friendly when she gets there? So we've got very, very bad access to healthcare. Now, the next problem is we've got these enormous inequalities. Has anybody lived or worked, or does anybody come from Kenya or Nairobi? Yeah, you've been there, thanks. Well, that is a big difference. One marvelous city with extreme poverty in the slums, and very, very healthy people living in some of the posh suburbs. Any of you imagine which city in the world has got the biggest disparity in life expectancy, as recently published by the World Health Organization. Have any of you got any ideas what that city might be? I don't think you'll guess in a thousand years. Well, it's Glasgow. It's Glasgow in London. If you drive from the posh suburb of Lindsay through to some of the, what we call, heartbreak uh, estates in the city, you, there is a difference in life expectancy of 27 years. Does that say something about access to health care? Does that say something about where doctors like to practice? And in the US, I'm not going to get involved in that one. I'm just going to go to the nice se- session later today to learn all about your healthcare system. I think I know a bit about it, and I think I've got my own views, but I'm prepared to change them. Anyway, so there are these huge inequalities World Health Organizations from last year's World Health Report. So reliable. Okay, so we got the huge needs, we got the bad access, we've got the big inequalities, and then we have got too few health workers. Anyone anyone want to guess what the current figure is of the number of health care workers that are lacking in the world, the number of more doctors, nurses and midwives we need. Any thoughts? A few thousand? Hundred thousand? Well, the latest figure is that. We are 4 million, that's about the population of New Zealand. We're 4 million short of trained health workers, doctors, nurses, and midwives. Thank God the world can do quite well without them at all, which you will see in a moment. But it's still scandalous. So. Some very clever person who was doing mathematical modeling said, well, I think probably by the year 2030, we might have enough of these people. That was very optimistic, and there wasn't much evidence. 2030, that's a long way off. We will probably never have enough trained health workers because we are so behind. Also, doctors love BMWs and tertiary hospitals, a very deadly uh, attraction especially when the people who most need them are not anywhere near those special hospitals. So those are the key points. Have we really grasped this? I haven't grasped this. So what is the result? This was a quote from an article in the Lancet Medical Journal in 2004. Just read it while I have a a swig of water. Uh, because it gives you an impression. Has anybody ever been in a situation where they have felt completely overwhelmed by everything that is going on? All the people who go to the hospitals, all the people who are sick, how they feel the exhaustion of being overwhelmed? So we've got all those needs and we've got an overwhelmed group of people. We are suffering from being overwhelmed. I like being underwhelmed, which was a wonderful word which somebody invented recently and told me about. I said, she said, I'm feeling underwhelmed. I said, you lucky person. Great idea. Uh, but that's not the situation for so many people. So what can we do about this? If we were, had a little longer and, uh, and we were a little bit, actually we're now quite a large group, we could talk about your ideas. But this is where we come onto primary health care. Who is involved, or would like to be involved, in this room in primary healthcare? Yeah, great. Well, anybody who isn't, well, we'll just—I've got a rope outside. I'll just tie you guys up. That's fine. Um, I don't think it's going to be long enough. Right. So, what is primary healthcare? By the way, primary healthcare is not lots of things, but I'm going to try to condense it down to a 31-page description of what primary health care, which WHO put out in 2003. It was very long and very complicated. By the time we, most of us had read it, we hadn't a clue what primary health care was. So this is a little bit of a simplification, all right? It's this to start with. It's health services in or near communities. Uh, by the way, I have just seen enter... The room, the person who very kindly loaned me my computer because I was a very naughty boy and I didn't bring one with me from England. Her name is Connie Gates and we are sharing a stall upstairs. Connie represents a health program called Jumked, which is the best living example, probably, anywhere in the world, of how this stuff works in practice. Please visit the stall upstairs, far right, and it's called Jumked and Living Waters. Um, Okay, so that's just to let you know afterwards if you want to come and talk to us. Health services, yes, but a whole lot more than just health services. The whole point of primary health care, it's a health system. It's the whole system. But it starts with people, communities, where people are, the illnesses they've got, the problems they've got, and they're dealt with at the lowest level where they can well be dealt with, which may be a tertiary hospital. I collapsed after a game of squash a few years ago. I'm still playing a game, playing squash again, but unfortunately I I did do a sort of myocardial thing, so I I was whisked along to a tertiary hospital. So I'm a great fan of tertiary hospitals. They've saved my life twice. Um, But the purpose of the health system is that it starts where people are and then it moves upwards. That's a primary healthcare system. So when countries start to subscribe to primary health, they're not saying we're just gonna deal with the poor and the impoverished and the 1.3 billion. We're gonna set up a system which works for everybody, but it will start at community level and nobody will be excluded. Okay? I'm not gonna talk too much more about definitions. I just wanted to get that, that point across. You are allowed to just heckle at this point if anybody wants to. Okay. Great. And the crowds keep coming. Wonderful. The wonderful I, I love that bit in the, in the beginning of Genesis or somewhere in Genesis where, where Abraham is negotiating with God, saying, if, just, if there are just only ten people, Lord, if there are only really just five people, will you spare the city? Because at one stage I thought we were going to only have five. Well, it's great, that I don't have to think of that prayer anymore. Right, so why is primary health care so essential? By the way, this is written by the World Health Organization. For many years, people didn't think the WHO could write understandable English. But look, these are beautiful sentences. Don't you think that's fantastic? Primary health care brings balance to health care and puts families and communities at the hub of the health system. But as doctors, nurses, and midwives, we think that hospitals and institutions and where we work are the hub. The hub are actually the communities where people are ill. That's the hub of the health system. If we believe in incarnational theology, Jesus going to where people are, Jesus would probably not have hung around in hospitals very long, but he would have spent a lot of time in communities. And then this other lovely thing here, with an emphasis on local ownership, it makes space for solutions created by communities. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Somebody once said that in a community of 200 people, There is probably, given opportunity, a world-class actor and a future prime minister. There is a small town in Germany with 15,000 people in it, and they have just won the German Premier Football League because everybody in that town believes they can play football. There is a sense of belief that they themselves can do it. We need to look at every community in the world, no matter how impoverished, no matter how remote, as having seriously gifted people. Probably as gifted as those on the campus of Harvard, given the opportunities. And that's what I love about this. Uh, Solutions created by communities, owned by them and sustained by them. Great stuff, I, I love that. And Just to put a little bit of flesh on the bones here, we've been talking about all these concepts. Read that. Some of you will think that is peculiar and strange and dangerous. There is a movement worldwide for acute respiratory infection to be treated not in hospitals, not in health centers, not necessarily even by the community health worker going to a house but by members of households who recognize pneumonia and have antibiotics in the cupboard under the bed or by the fireplace. Not just for people with non-serious pneumonia, but with people who are so ill that they can only the little kids can only just swallow their medicine. Because the alternative is that if they went to hospital, they would be dead in two hours. But if they take their amoxicillin at home, they may still go to hospital, they'll live. So that was uh, published in The Lancet, and I love that. Uh, and uh, basically, that is where we need to have healthcare in communities and in homes, and then only at higher levels if it's needed. Okay, so far? Nobody's walked out? Okay, good. Primary healthcare kickoff. Stick up your hand if you have heard of the Alma ata Declaration. Yeah. That's fine. sorry, many. Uh, I won't talk much about history. History is important here. The Alma Arda Declaration was probably the World Health Organization's most foundational document. It defined healthcare for a generation. It was written, it was part written by Dr. Carl Taylor, age 94, who spoke at this conference as a plenary speaker last year, and who is probably the most famous primary healthcare uh, practitioner and proponent in the world. Uh, still alive and active at the age of 94. And he was one of the authors of the uh, famous Almaty Declaration. Basically, to cut a long story short, 134 member states got together in the uh, city what is now known as Almaty. Uh, They signed this amazing declaration, and the idea was to have health for all by the year 2000. And I dragged my family and uh, my three kids and my wife to the other end of the world, saying, and I resigned my job in family practice, and my father thought I better put my son in a lunatic asylum, why is he giving up a good career? And it was because God used health rule by the year 2000 to call me abroad. Very exciting days, back in the early 80s. However, things did not work quite as planned, we'll come to that in a moment. I'm just going to run through this very quickly. I know this is a little bit basic for some people here, but I just want to say, what, what was all the stuff that we got excited about? What were all the things that we were involved in? Uh, just as we go through this list, see if that is your interest. This may be one of your interests, in which case, let's talk about it. By the way, at the end of this, I'll put up an email where you can get in touch with me and we can discuss it. So, health education. That was one of the key things of Alma-Ada, still is. This is still a core primary health care activity. Good nutrition. Uh, There have been some scary statistics from from UNICEF recently that the situation with nutrition, there are more hungry people in the world now than at any time in the last 30 years. That was announced last week. There are more hungry people in the world now than at any time in the last 30 years, partly because of the economic downturn. Uh, I'm not going to say because of the bankers. I wouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, So malnutrition is a very, very serious worry continuing to be. Safe water and basic, basic sanitation. I have never ter- been terribly interested in lavatories, restrooms, and johns, which I think is what you call them in the UK. We call them toilets and loos, but let's call them latrines. Basic sanitation. But it's fantastically important for the, for the techies amongst us. Water supplies. maternal and child health. We looked at all those incredibly, incredibly grueling statistics. but. Millennium Development Goals. Stick up your hand if you know about MDGs, Millennium Development Goals. By the year 2015, we got eight Millennium Development Goals we're all meant to reach. We're not going to reach them. Number four is child health. Number five is maternal health. So all the stuff to do with mums and children. There's a, a photograph I took of one of our health workers a few years back, weighing a nice, healthy little baby. Uh, and then there, were, then there were four more. Let me just run through these immunizations. Extremely important, not necessarily terribly exciting, just sticking needles into people who don't want to have needles stuck into them. Absolutely life-saving. A very important part and an increasingly important part of primary health care. Locally endemic diseases, all kinds of exciting things. There are now eight neglected tropical diseases which the World Health Organization has flagged up. I won't bore you with all the names. Schistosomiasis is one, onchocerciasis, and so forth and so on they affect one million people and they are all easily treatable if you've got good and effective primary health care programs just two more treatment of common diseases and injuries if people are ill if people have hurt themselves they want to find somebody who can put them right so primary health care has got to be about diagnosis and treatment but it's much more than that but it's got to be about that as well and guys, having essential medicines pharmacists here, anybody interested in? Great. Can I just say pharmacists are hugely needed in this whole new emerging uh, healthcare paradigm that's going forwards because they are so crucial. Uh, DOTS treatment for TB, DOTS treatment uh, for psychosis in communities, mental health, anybody here interested in mental health? Um, and of course, antiretrovirals for HIV, so hugely important. So those were the core primary healthcare activities. Now, uh, we're just gonna have a little gap here because we're talking back 1978. And what happened in the years following that, especially in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the early noughties, do you call them noughties here in this country or are you too holy? Okay. In the early, in the nineties and the early noughties, we had loads of exciting vertical programs. Vertical programs are very important. You do your malaria, you do your HIV, you do your river blindness, uh, you do your roadblack black malaria, you do this, that and the other, and you have shafts of light coming from heaven down to people who have got trendy diseases. With wonderful donors giving money for them. I'm not actually trying to be cynical. It's fantastic. But if you don't have a trendy disease, and if you're not in a shaft of light of a vertical health program, you are in trouble because you've only got diarrhea, you've only got acute respiratory infection, you've only got something else you're gonna die from. So there was an enormous emphasis on vertical programs, and actually they're great. But the primary healthcare, how you integrate them all at community level was left high and dry somewhere else, and people forgot about it. But, but the great thing is, Uh, Three or four years ago, there was a new Director General of the World Health Organization called Dr. Margaret Chan. Has anybody met or known about Dr. Chan? She's a very inspiring woman. Uh, One of the, of course, she's been doing loads of things. She's had to deal with serious things like SARS, less serious things like swine flu, which I had uh, two weeks ago. I haven't got it now. Um, Please talk to me afterwards. And I did wash my hands after breakfast. Um, And Margaret Chan has said, right, we did all the primary health care, we need to do it again. This must be the foundation of global health in the future. And that was just one of the things she said. She said this a hundred times in a different situation. She said that in Argentina in 2007. So we're back again with PHC being at the top of the health agenda. That's very exciting. Remembering that it's services and systems. But it is very different now from 1978. I was going to say, stick up your hand if you were alive in 1978. Yeah, I'm going to say that actually. Stick up your hand if you're alive in 1978. I'm ah, furious. Right, okay. That's terrific. Um, but things are very different now. We've got all the same problems, but we've got loads more problems. we got all these. Some of these things are good, of course. Emerging tiger, tiger economies are good. Uh, some of those things are simply uh, uh, atrocious, uh, like, the, uh, uh, like terrorism, of course, climate change, and cutting down trees. But we live in a different world. So, primary healthcare and community-based healthcare. By the way, Connie, uh, Connie Gates from JumpCade calls this community-based primary healthcare. I like that because primary healthcare is centered on communities. I'm just going to call it PHC, a bit quicker. Um, we've got all the non-communicables. More people are dying in the world now from non-communicable diseases than they are from infectious diseases. So we do the infectious stuff, yes. But in primary healthcare, we've got to do the non-communicables as well. Uh, Diabetes. I have always found diabetes far too complicated to understand, and I've never, I've never known if that's because I'm extremely dim or whether diabetes is just extremely complicated. But it's becoming one of the most important illnesses in the world. A lot of it can be diagnosed and treated by community health workers. So we've got diabetes, we've got stroke. I'm currently working uh, with a friend in Mongolia, with nomads, the nomads are dying from strokes because they have hugely rich diets in cholesterol and salt. But there are primary healthcare solutions at primary health care level for that. Blood pressure. COPD, any future chest physicians here? That's hugely important. That's one of the top five causes of death in the world. Not all smoking related, a lot of it is. I'm listing these up because in our primary healthcare programs, in our community-based primary health care programs, these things have got to be included. They weren't so needed in 1978, but they're really needed now. Mental health issues... Um, I spend a lot of my time seeing people who are working abroad and I was uh, was doing a medical check on somebody who introduced themselves uh, about four months ago and said, by the way, before you take my blood pressure and feel my tummy and do all the things you guys have got to do, let me just tell you what I'm doing. He says, I'm working in East Asia with patients at community level who are suffering from schizophrenia, from psychotic illness and we have trained community health workers to diagnose and treat one half of all those people with psychotic illness so they can be reintegrated into the community and become effective, normal community members. How do we do it? Well, it's fairly obvious if they've got got the condition. And we just make sure that a family member ensures that every day they take their pill. They take their antipsychotic medication every day, but somebody watches them do it. Half those people are cured. They don't have to go to hospital. They They don't actually have to see a physician it's just a protocol. I thought that's very exciting. This person worked with both the World Health Organization and Christopher Blunden mission. Uh, so yes, we he, he did. Uh, we did just have time to do his blood pressure after about an hour of discussion. It was a, it was an eye opener for me. It was an eye opener for me. Mental health care is horribly neglected. Psychiatrists are in some countries still stigmatized. I mean, I'm very passionate about the mental health care of missionaries and. Um, And we've got a by the way, there's a session on that for anybody who's interested, I'm not doing it. Addictions, tobacco, disability. Disability can be dealt with at community level with good training of health workers. And David Verne has written an amazing book on that. Smoking, landmines, all these things. So we've got a new PHC today, which does immunizations, does malnutrition, but it does all these things as well. Okay. Guys, it's half time. Please do your Tai Chi, your stretching, your yoga. No, probably those things aren't allowed here. Uh, please do your meditation, your prayers, stand up, uh, kiss or hit your neighbor, whatever. We're having just two minutes gap to get the circulation going. Um, <laughs> there are loos outside if you had three cups of coffee for breakfast. You. I'm fine. I brought this for you. Oh, Bruce, that's marvelous. Okay, I have, uh, I've, yes. I've, if you want to make an announcement, I've got probably 50, well, maybe not quite 50. I've got 25 copies. Got the first 25 people who want them here, I've given out. I brought 200 copies, but I don't have all of them in the room right now. Bruce, which is your stall upstairs? Uh, I don't have a stall. Right. Uh, while you're doing your exercises, I just have a, an announcement here from a friend of mine called Bruce Carr. Uh, on a, can you just g- give a, uh, this is a special thing. He, I've, I've had a bribe of a hundred thousand dollars for this announcement, which is great. It's paid for my, it's paid for my nice hotel. Bruce, do you, get, do you want to just take, do okay. twenty seconds? All right. I'm not a physician, but I may be going to medical school someday. If my family follows to my request when I die that uh, my body be donated for. Uh, so the future doctors can uh, learn their basic anatomy but anyway i'm a retired high school teacher i put together something i call healthy overseas directory it includes uh, 232 organizations over half of which are medically related and 72 sources of free and inexpensive medical supplies so i brought uh, i've got right now about 25 or 30 copies I'll be glad to give away anybody who wants in this city. I'll be over, over in this corner. Uh, Bruce, thank you for that. That's fantastic, because we the last 15 minutes, we're going to be talking about opportunities. Where and what are the opportunities for us? So that is very timely. Bruce, thank you for that. Bruce emailed me from the UK, so I'm delighted. We just, we've just linked up. Fantastic. Um, We're still on primary health care, then we're going to get on to, if you remember, faith-based organizations then on opportunities. Am I talking too fast? No, I'm going to talk a little faster then, terrific. (laughs) (laughs) Primary health care, community-based primary health care with community health workers and so forth and so on works very well if it's done well and it works extremely badly if it's done, if it isn't done properly. And in order for your primary health care programs to be effective, they have got to be linked up. They can't just be one here, one there, one there. They're all either not knowing about each other or fighting each other. They have got to be well documented. If anybody here is into wanting to document, write, operational research, get stuff down, uh, is in Myers-Briggs terms an ST. Somebody who wants to get the detail down. This is extremely valuable in primary health care. We need to make sure that these programs work better than they do. A lot of them are only getting 3 out of 10, and they should be getting 8 or 9 out of 10 for effectiveness, so they need to have their capacity strengthened. We need to do stuff that is evidence-based. It's amazing how much stuff a lot of us have done in the past which is not evidence-based, and it's been a blind alley. We need to make sure that the interventions, the things we do, are based on, if not random-based controlled trials, if not RCTs, then at least on what is perceived to be best practice. And we need to work with government. A lot of us Christians think we've got to do our little Christian thing on the side. Well, that's sometimes what God calls us to do. But actually, we're meant to be brave, and we're meant to do our healthcare programs in association with other people who may not agree with us. I heard a fantastic talk from an AIM, AIM missionary this time last Thursday who said what we do is to work in the overlap. We will work with any organization, whether it's a government, or this or a that or the other, where there is an overlap. We need to do that in our primary healthcare programs. We must not be isolationist. We must be effective advocates. We must help others to do it well, but we must always relate. And that is... The key that community members must be the key players, not the doctors, not the healthcare professionals, not even the anthropologists and the sociologists, though they are very important. But it is the people themselves, and that is the heart of primary healthcare. I think probably most of you will agree with this so far, but if you don't, that's fine, and we can talk afterwards. Now, we're just nearly coming to the end of this and getting on to faith based organizations, but I just wanted to quickly flag up, and again, please talk to Connie at Booth on the right, second floor, or myself, because GermCAD uh, is the program where this has been worked out, it's been nominated for the Gates Award this year, covers uh, half a million population. The community health worker, okay? And who are these people? This is very quick, this slide. Um, CHWs are becoming absolutely crucial to the new primary health care, to the revitalized primary health care. People elected and trained within their communities, not outsiders, but insiders, so well-trained. And please, all of you, just learn and know about CHWs. And is the news all good? the news is not all good. If you have community health worker programs which are badly managed, and where the CHWs are badly taught, you have a disaster on your hand, a public relations disaster, and people are not helped in their health. But if you have programs that are well-managed, and if you have community health workers that are well-trained and continually trained, and you have good monitoring and evaluation, you have got a magic bullet. It's difficult, but you've got a magic bullet. Um, I love that. That comes from no less a journal than your famous New England Journal of Medicine. Training of community health workers should be undertaken even in places where physicians are abundant. Isn't it great to have a doctor say that sort of thing? Realizing that non-doctors, community health workers, community people themselves can do a lot of the stuff better than us doctors because we get hijacked into the high tech and the complicated and the big picture rather than knowing how to deal with stuff at community level. And that's all to do with non-communicable diseases. So I love that. That's That's a crucial, a crucial thing which I read recently. Love that. A famous picture from Where There Is No Doctor. Do you all know the wonderful book called Where There Is No Doctor published by the Hesperian Foundation? Fantastic. It's in 100 million copies have been made, 30, 50 languages, I can't remember, terrific. Comes from there, love that picture. Right, so, help, we've got 20 more minutes, have to go faster. Um, we're talking about these wonderful things, these boring words, and we get sick of the words sometimes, but actually this empowerment thing, this transformation, we're not Plonking people. Is that a rude word here? It's probably slightly rude in England. We're not dumping people and supplies and ideas and other things onto communities. We are working with communities to facilitate a community response. To visit the community, learn from them, talk to them, saying, guys, What are you interested in? What do you do? What are your strengths? Who are the guys here are good at telling stories? Who are the people who are good at dancing? Who are the people who can motivate a community? We work with them. We work with the community leaders. And we find that this community is a whole group of people with fantastic gifts who can do most healthcare themselves with appropriate training of their own elected community health workers. Um, And that's empowerment. And then, of course, this leads to a radical change in the way people think. And above all, what they think is, I, we, our community can do it. Fantastic. It's not delivery. Of course, some of this stuff is delivery, giving jabs is. Some of this is delivery, but primarily it's those things. Wonderful. Okay. I was going to call this section um, UFOs because sometimes in the past, faith-based organizations have been a little bit like UFOs. Strange things that sort of float around on the edge of the healthcare system and nobody's quite sure if they exist or what they do. And you know, the, 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 the main stuff is done by governments and secular humanitarian agencies. And the faith-based guys have been a little bit on the edge. It's no longer like that. It's no longer like that. So we're going to talk about Faith-based organizations, I'm going to use the term FBO, it is politically correct. Of course, the great majority of people who work with faith-based organizations are committed Christians. Not all, but the great majority. Now, this is where we come on to an interesting piece of information. The World Health Organization, which is committed to work with governments, a few years ago thought, well, there are these things called UFOs, FBOs, and they probably do li- do a little bit of health care. So they commissioned some research, and this was the research that came out. Don't you think that's incredible? About half the healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa is actually provided by Christians and church-based institutions. The World Health Organization was so astonished by that fact, and slightly red-faced, that they decided to call a consultation on the role of faith-based Organisations. I was a very lucky boy. I was, the last, I, I was asked to go along to this and, and participate and, and speak at it. And um, we had two fantastic days with uh, uh, atheists, agnostics, uh, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, all around the table saying, how can we do this stuff together? Isn't that exciting? And, of course, the Christians started to take the lead because often basically created in the image of God, being in touch with God, hopefully. I mean, not as much as we would like. But we therefore have got access to God's ways, God's creative energy, God's understanding. So, of course, we can start to help lead this process. So these were some of the recommendations that came out of it. Guys, you FBOs have got a vital role to play. Great to hear that. The second most senior person in the World Health Organization said in the middle of this consultation where you're not even allowed to have a prayer meeting in the building. He said, this is this is a deputy DG, he said, I wish we could start every meeting in the World Health Organization with prayer. You see, the great thing is that these big international organizations are getting more and more people of faith coming into them from Africa, Asia, and Latin America, which is fantastic. FBOs have a vital role to play. But they've got to up their game, they got to do stuff better, they've got to link together, they've got to stop being so isolationist and protective and apologetic. They need to stand up and be counted. Uh, in England, we're extremely good at apologizing. I could, I could think of about five things I could have apologized this morning. I'm very sorry I don't speak American properly. I'm very sorry I didn't bring a computer. I'm very sorry I'm English. I'm very sorry I don't come from Liverpool. <laughs> uh, all these sorts of things. Um, But you know, as Christians, we are forever apologizing to people. Or we have an apologetic spirit. We're not meant to be arrogant, but we're meant to stand up and be counted. We need to not be scared of government, but we need to say, Thank you, Lord, you made this government. Okay, Uh, there's a lot of corruption there. There's corruption in my heart as well. Never mind, you made them. We will work with the government. We will integrate. We will take the lead. We will not be scared. And that is such an important thing. We shouldn't be intimidated. So at the end of two days, there is a small report that came out uh, after this. We had uh, this this start of WHO seriously engaging with faith-based organizations. Great. this was marvelous. I'm just going to skim over that because that's not so important. Um, They then did a similar thing with NGOs, but I'm wanting to just keep to the faith stuff. Right. This week... Uh, Finishing today, a colleague of mine, Dr. Nick Henwood, who would be here otherwise, has been at this conference because WHO and a very exciting new emerging organization in the States, based based in Washington, have decided that we need to document all these primary health care programs. There are thousands, tens of thousands of church-based primary health care programs all over the world, but nobody knows about them apart from themselves and their own supporters. So we need to have them documented. That's what's happening this week, coming up with some uh, hopefully very simple way of doing it. Well, so all these openings are coming in the, in the, in the big organizations. But uh, the scary thing is, uh, you know, doors, the, these doors out here are pretty straightforward, but you know, revolving doors, doors that you sometimes get stuck in or you, you go up to them and you find you can't get out again, the revolving doors, at the moment, the, we've, got a, we've got an oxygenated atmosphere as Christians in global health. But it's possible the oxygen will get turned off. It's possible the doors will revolve and we will not be there forever. So this is the time. That's why we're calling this Carpe Dia now. Seize the moment. Um, because all these things are going on. The faith-based consultation, then WHO had this one, wanting to get all the NGOs involved, which uh, we were also involved with in Community Health Global Network. There's an amazing guy, he used to be the uh, chaplain at the White House called Ted Karpf, who is a member of WHO, an extremely influential person there. He has written a fabulous book on decent care in the midst of HIV-AIDS. It's just been translated into Arabic, Chinese, Russian, eight languages, published by, uh, supported by the Ford Foundation, published by WHO. And it's all about how different faiths do healthcare. It's a wonderful book. And it's about decent care. All the stuff based on Christian, Christian values. This sort of stuff has not appeared in the non-Christian press for, probably ever when it comes to global health. But it's happening now. And then this consultation I've just told you about. Uh, I work with somebody called Ian Campbell in England. Some of you in interested in HIV may know about this. He and a group of Christians this week are doing the, are doing the continuing professional development for the whole of the UNAIDS staff in Geneva a Christian group has been called in to do it uh, in 16 long seminars, that wouldn't have been possible even two to three years ago. Committed, outspoken Christians actually training the staff of UNAIDS in Geneva. So the opportunities are just huge. Opportunities. I wanted to do that even bigger. My computer wouldn't do it. Right. Um, you see, we, we are now caught up in an idea The idea is that global health can be successful, Christians can influence it, we need to get into the mainstream. This is a very, very powerful thing. Greater than the tread of mighty armies is an idea whose time has come. I love that quote. Um, This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Does anybody... uh, Some of you will know this verse, and some of you will think, this is a typical, rather complicated Old Testament verse, and I don't understand it. The point of this verse is that when God is going to do something, he sort of gives signals, he gives warning. In this particular case, it was a bunch of people listening out for an army, and when they could hear the sort of echo of the army in the tops of the trees, they knew that this was God's moment. Um, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you. These opportunities I'm talking about are God-given. They aren't, they're not just sort of part of evolution. These are God-given opportunities. And God is directing us in our strategic response to them. So I'm just going to tell you for the first three minutes, can we just run three minutes over? Because I talk nonsense for the first five minutes. Is that all right? Okay, we'll go on until 25.2. If anybody wants to leave, that's fine. Um, has anybody visited or been to Asha Health Program in New Delhi? Hooray, one person. You, The rest of you are missing a treat. You also take a trip to India, go to Jamket, And do a month's training. Connie will tell you about that uh, and also go on to Delhi. Uh, Remember that fact and remember that God's plan is to have a perfect holy city. So there's something very special about cities and they and cities of course have got more Destroyed by the sin of, of all of us, and probably any other communities. Apparently, even more than rural communities, very often. Right. This is a very quick little description about a program working in the slums of Delhi. <coughs> Started 20 years ago. Um, that is a little. That is a typical scene of an unimproved slum in many different parts of the world. The railway track is the main place where people. Uh, uh, go to the loo, sorry, well, they, where they, what do you say here? Poop, what is it? I can't remember. Is that right? Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't learn. Churchill said that England and America were two, uh, two friendly nations separated by a common language, I love that. Um, anyway, so these kids, commonest cause of death, acute respiratory infections. Second commonest cause, decapitation by trains because the toilet and the playground are both the railway track. Uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Many of you will have seen Slumdog Millionaire. Yes, okay, well it's that. I'm going to just tell you uh, about Kiran Martin. Kiran, at the time she started this project, was a 28-year-old Indian graduate from Bombay and she didn't know one end of a slum from another but she felt God calling her to work in the slums of Delhi. And so she phoned the slum commissioner for Delhi and she said, my name is Dr. Kiran Martin. I'm a 28 year old female medical graduate and I believe I meant to do something for the slums of Delhi. And the person answering the telephone the other end said, I'm very sorry, but the slum commissioner is not in town. He has a three month waiting list and he has a rule that he will only meet people that he already knows. Dr. Kiran Martin said, this is the most significant thing. Dr. Kiran Martin said, I understand from your tone of voice, he is in the office this afternoon I am coming straight around to see him. Guys, that is the attitude we need. Three hours later, they had shaken a deal, Kieran Martin, the slum commissioner, on setting up the first of now 45 different health programs in the slums of Delhi, with the government providing the health centre and Kieran Martin providing the people. And so it's gone on as this wonderful partnership, now covering... Half a million people in Delhi. She's That's got the equivalent of an Indian, what in England we call call a knighthood. Um, So it's a wonderful story of somebody with a call from God and refusing to say no. And even though she has had her life threatened, her colleagues have had threatened rapes in clinics, although there there have been demonstrations, Uh, she has kept at it. And uh, two weeks ago, it was on the BBC News website, because of some of the amazing transformation that has happened here. It's not just health. It's playgrounds. It's micro It's bringing people out of poverty. It's dance groups. It's drama. It's getting kids into universities from the poorest backgrounds. It is community transformation, and it all started with one person called by God who refused to be intimidated by anybody and continues to be refuse to be intimidated. So it's this wonderful program which starts with uh, the community being uh, divided into groups, 25 houses, community health worker for each one. That's how it started. They're all trained. The community health workers get together. They now more or less run and manage the project. Kieran Marty is in the background. Uh, It's a huge organization. And this is another thing that Kiran did. She said, I would love people from other countries to know about this. So she got in touch with the American embassy, and she said, when you guys next have a trade delegation coming to New Delhi, put half a day aside and get your parliamentarians and your tradespeople to come and spend half a day in Usher. We we will provide the boots, and they can walk around the slums. And 30 people came, senators, senators' wives, uh, and so forth. And therefore, she comes three times a year to Capitol Hill, Uh, where there's a a South Asian caucus and poverty caucus, and speaks to them, and she has actually had an influence on American policy over the last 10 to 15 years when it comes to understanding the needs of the poor. What one person can do, she is just an ordinary, an ordinary but passionate, God-inspired doctor. Fantastic. So I just wanted to leave that little story with you, and the statistics are terrific. We're nearly... And she's written a book. And she has written a book... Connie, thank you for that. The book is called Urban Health and Development. There are copies upstairs on our booth, a few, and where you can order it from. So if any of you are interested in urban health, an unpopular, difficult subject, but probably the most important of all, just ask God before you go to sleep tonight, am I meant to get involved with urban health? And you may have a heart attack if he starts to say yes, but it is so needed. Right, so opportunities, yes, the Nazareth Manifesto, we all know that. But do you know what happens? If you, if you read on in Isaiah 61, uh, it doesn't just stop. It doesn't just stop about all these things we're meant to do for people. This is what it goes on to say. So that they will rebuild the ancient ruins. Who are they? They're the poor, the broken-hearted, the people who've had freedom proclaimed to them, the blind and those who've been in darkness. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will renew the ruined cities. Guys, this is the theology of empowerment. It's straight from the Old Testament. that The very people that God ministers to are the people who rebuild the cities, who help to set up a new Jerusalem. I find that amazingly and wonderfully exciting. I think that is the most, most thrilling thing about incarnational theology. It's the people themselves who've been at the bottom of the pile who rebuild the cities. That is wonderful. Um, right. The last, the last five minutes. Do any of you know a ridiculous English television programme called Monty Python? Now for something completely different, usually starts like that, yeah, okay. Uh, So all the things I hold on to all the things we've been talking about, but I'm just gonna say a few things now which will please some people and shock others, but I'm gonna say them anyway because I think they're really important. We are living in an extremely diverse world. A hundred years ago, if we were Christian doctors, we would probably go and start up or work in a mission hospital. And thank God, there are loads of these all over the world, and there are more than ever, and it's a hugely important area. But we live in such a diverse world. We come from such a variety of backgrounds. We've learned so many skills that a lot of us are going to need to think out of the box and get out of the boat And sometimes that means messing up our careers. The great thing, of course, is that if God leads your career, it's not messed up. It may not approve to your parents and your very serious older sister, but it won't be messed up if God's in charge of it. Um, And, of course, we're encouraged to get out of the boat. The Bible doesn't talk very much about boxes, but it talks about boats. So it's great to do, it is great to do all the existing things. It's very great to do those things in the name of God. But we need these people too. I call them social and spiritual entrepreneurs. People who see that's the need. These people are the ones who might be able to meet it. I'm going to bring the two together. We've got loads of financial entrepreneurs. Think how wonderful the world would be if we had lots of social and spiritual entrepreneurs. My goodness me, we wouldn't have collapsing this, that, and the others. We'd have thriving communities. And so we need the radical thinkers and the enthusiasts and the risk-takers and the Hebrews 11 types, as I call them, and the opportunists, the people who see, my goodness me, yeah, that's an opportunity. Who's doing that? And then they think, well, could I do that? Could I get together with some friends and could we start doing that? And that's one of the great things about this conference. Um, somebody in the Christian Medical Fellowship in, in, uh, in the UK said, yes, we call them bushfire organizations and bushfire people. Some of you here would love to think you're a bushfire person, and some of you will think, oh, no, that's not for me at all. Well, anyway, I'm saying this for people who think that might be the thing. In other words, you have an explosion of interest and excitement and passion about something, and you can't sit still until you've got going on it. And then you might pass it on to somebody else and the bushfire will spread and then God may drip, drop another exciting idea into your mind 10 to 15 years later. So you may go through a sequence sequence of different things which you see God is needing to do and you enable people to do them and then move on. It's not everybody's call, but it is, it is some people's call and in my, my view there are more and more people who are being led in that direction. So we need to think outside the box. There are just a few of the things that, uh, that are outside the box. Uh, there are loads more, but just have a quick look through that. See, does it, do any of those things appeal to you guys, especially those of you who are thinking about the future, mental health? The most effective way of doing health promotion is to write funny and amusing and sometimes slightly outrageous radio and TV soaps. There are countries all over the world who tune in at a certain time, but the health is written into the soap. Fantastic. Afghanistan, Somalia, South Africa, Rwanda, Afghanistan, Cambodia. All those countries have got a lot from the, from the soaps. Community surgery is waiting to be developed. Doing surgery, not in hospitals, but in communities as far as you're able. And so on and so forth. I don't know if urban care is there. Working with nomads, islanders, remote communities, one-tenth of the poorest people in the world live in mountains, and mountains are very, very hard to reach. So all those things, oh, there are thousands more, so um, add add your own. What I'm trying to say is that there are just endless, endless opportunities here. Right, if you're wondering now, how can I get outside the the, the box and climb out of the boat, the answer is you can join a network, and I'm just going to flag up a few By the way, I should have said at the beginning, I can email this presentation to anybody who wants it. So don't think, oh my goodness me, I didn't get the stuff down. You can just, uh, I'll tell you how to in a moment. CCIH, stand on the the bottom stall here. One of the most exciting networking Christian organizations there is. CMDA, you're all familiar with. Um, Join one of these networks because you'll get lots of different ideas, okay? Prime, that's a very exciting thing to do with medical education from a Christian perspective. Community Health Global Network, which I'm involved with, you can, uh, if anybody is interested, uh, come and just grab one of these afterwards. They're up here, there are some more on the stall upstairs, linking together groups involved in community healthcare. Map International, they've got a stall here. People's Health Movement is not a Christian group, but it does extremely exciting stuff in, in healthcare advocacy, uh, radical ideas. Che, uh, Community Health Evangelism, Stan Roland's Life Wind, they've got a stall here. Stan's speaking later. Uh, Jumked, the best living example of how all this works. Connie Gates, upstairs on our stall. So join a network because this will put you in touch with loads of other people who are also thinking in all sorts of new and different and traditional ways. Uh, I'm not going to run through what we're doing. Uh, come and find out yourself. We're doing lots of very exciting things. At least I think they're very exciting, but I don't want to talk too much about that. This is my final a little bunch of four slides. For those of you who think, that's fine, but actually we're called to preach the gospel. Yes. We're called to preach it and demonstrate it and serve people and show that the gospel is something that works in people's lives. So we do have it all tied in together because God is able to sort of balance these things out. Uh, And God's interested in this healthy world, but he's also interested in the saved world, so there will not be a conflict the mix and match, all that stuff. Your saving health to all nations, one of the psalms, 66, I can't remember, anyway, a wonderful psalm. Saving health. And just a quick uh, thoughts on that. I, love that. I love that description of evangelism. Evangelism and answer to questions raised by New Testament living. So live out your Christian life and people will scratch their head and say, hey, you guys you are a bit different. A lot of us will have had that experience, or some of us will not, and we think, why didn't people ask us? That's my life isn't that different. So we like what we see, please may we have it. So all the time in what we're doing, we are stimulating people to ask questions about why, and who, and what are you guys, and what is your faith? Uh, And I'm just gonna, this is a half a minute story when we were training community health workers in North India, the first two Christians happened like this. Our village health workers were known to... um, uh, They were known to belong to a program that had a God who answered the prayers of the leaders of the program. And one day a village health worker came and said, "Um, your God answers your prayers. Please will you pray that tonight my goats will not wander away from the house so that we have to spend as a family the whole of tomorrow trying to gather the goats and exhaust ourselves. So the uh, the nurse training village health worker said, yes, I will pray that your goats will behave themselves. They did. They stayed in the compound all night. And that person became a Christian because God answered the prayer about goats. (laughs) And the next day, somebody said, right, I've heard about the goats. My problem is my husband beats me every night when I go home. And especially after I've been to one of your village health worker training sessions because they don't want me to come out of the house. Pray my husband will be nice. The husband was nice, and she was the next person who became a Christian. So the wonderful thing is that as we do and demonstrate things, we stimulate people to say, what are you guys about? Who is your God? Can I get in touch with him too? And I just want to say that miracle is welcomed and expected. We do social justice, we do health care, we do all the things we've been talking about. I was in uh, an area of North India a few months ago and I was hearing stories of miracle, of miraculous healing, miraculous escapes and astonishing New Testament activities like Acts 29 that were going on as a result and of communities coming to faith as a result. So we mustn't forget that God is still active in miraculous ways in different parts of the world. And that's another thing we need to tie into and get excited about. Uh, And when people see miracles, they say, Yeah, God is greater than our God. We like what we see, please may we have it. Uh, And my final slide here. It's very easy to get excited and to say there are all these opportunities. Guys, it's really tough to do it at the front line and here is uh, a Ugandan running along the sticky soils of East Africa uh, he's, he's running and it's very hard to keep running because your shoes get all jammed up and he's also leaping with excitement because it's worth doing it because of the rewards you see but it's still difficult and exhausting so remember the shoes but guys also remember these opportunities um, I don't think we've got time for questions we've run on um, just three things for you to know about. Uh, a book upstairs on how to set up health programs, a book on head at the same stall, uh, the health network. Please just come and take one of those. Um, those of you who are interested in the health care of missionaries, that's also what I do. There's stuff upstairs about that. And I don't mind you emailing me if you don't mind <laughs> not getting an answer for two weeks. Um, and you are more than welcome to, uh, to be in touch. And I'm just going to say a prayer to finish. Uh, if anybody wants to leave for the next plenary, please go. Lord, we thank you for your world, and we thank you for what you're doing in your world, and we thank you that you've called all of us here to get involved in some way with it. And I, I just pray, Father, that we may all just discern your word to us, where we're going, what we should be doing. And Lord, we pray that we would have the persistence of that of that kid who's running along those sticky orange African soils and we would not give up. We wouldn't be deflected by mortgages and relationships and student debt and worries about our family and our parents and discerning what you want us to do. We commit ourselves to you and say thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.